Hey guys, welcome back to the Claim the Stage podcast. I'm Angela Lucier. I am your host. I'm also a speaker, author, and founder of the Speaking School for Women, an online training program for women who want to become professional speakers. And I should add, the Speaking School for Women is back February 20th, and I am starting a wait list for people who are interested in registering at the end of January. So if that is you, please send me an email and I'll put you on my super special, super top secret, hidden in a treasure box waiting list. You can email me at Angela at AngelaLucier.us. And I also run the Speaker Sisterhood, which is a network of speaking clubs for women. And they are awesome. All the information about that stuff is at my website at AngelaLucier.us. And the Claim the Stage podcast is a show for courageous women who want to follow their dreams by claiming their voice. And I teach you how to do this by interviewing awesome people and sharing some of my own advice and stories. This show is sponsored by McNally Communications. They train you to get results by speaking, writing, and presenting with more impact. And you can say it better. They'll show you how at McNallyCommunications.com. Our second sponsor is Name Net Worth, a networking consulting company that helps people improve their networking skills. They developed an app that makes networking really easy. Imagine that. You can get more information at NameNetWorth.com. Okay, before I jump into who's on today's show, I felt like I should share my Yogi Tea fortune of the day. I don't know if you drink Yogi Tea. They are not a sponsor of the show, but I love their ginger tea and I drink it a couple days a week and I always love reading those little fortunes. Sometimes they're really cheesy. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that is so true. And it makes me stare out the window longingly at the clouds. (laughs) And today's was one of them. It was a relaxed mind is a creative mind. And I thought, what a good reminder. Sometimes we get so wrapped up and in this like zone of creation, in this zone of doing and being productive and crossing stuff off the to-do list that we forget to just relax because that's when ideas come and that's when solutions show up. So I wanted to share that little piece of advice from Yogi T before we get into today's interview, which is amazing. My interview today is with Dr. Phyllis Mendel, who is a pioneer in the space of communication, specifically helping women to claim their voice and their strength. And you're going to learn how to avoid using weak language and instead replace it with strong, powerful words. And I just read her book, how to say it for women a couple months ago. And my mind was blown. I thought, how did I not know about this stuff before? (laughs) We need to have her on the podcast. So that's what you're about to experience. This woman has lived an entire life of helping others. And she is about to celebrate her 80th birthday and just so much wisdom in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Grab a cup of tea, set up with your relaxed mind and enjoy. Called the world's expert on professional communications, Dr. Phyllis Mandel marks her 80th birthday with the launch of thewordgramma.com. You'll find her blogs, in-depth articles, how-tos, and services that help young people find their voices to succeed and lead in the world. Her four published books, Power Reading, A Woman's Guide to the Language of Success, How to Say It for Women, and How to Say It for Executives, have been translated into several languages, and she speaks at major national 
national and international conferences. Dr. Mendel's firm, Well Read Seminars, educated thousands of professionals with her singular methods, which are now available free through the wordgramma.com. Dr. Mendel, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. Thank you, Angela. This topic of weak language is something that I hadn't thought that much about until I was introduced to your work through your book, How to Say It for Women. And that will be the main focus of our conversation today, so we can help women use stronger language when they're speaking one-on-one -on -one with someone, when they're giving feedback, or when they're giving a presentation. So I'd love to jump right in and get an understanding from you as to what constitutes weak language. Can you give us an example of a sentence using weak language and what it would sound like if you use strong language? Yes, I'll do that. And But a reminder, too, that weak language is consists of a variety of kinds of aspects of language. Uh, it consists of word choices sentence structures, and also nonverbal communications. But I'll give you an example of sentences because that, that's the most easily recognizable form of weak language. And this is a direct quote from a very well-educated woman in the world of work. And I only fake the last four words. I'm not sure how I really feel about this, but this solution sounds promising. I'll read that again to you. I'm not sure how I really feel about this, but now let's take a look at what this woman is doing. She has something content of interest to say. She's talking about the solution to a problem, but she begins a sentence with the weakest starter the word to avoid almost all the time when you're speaking, I. And then, she, so she starts by shooting herself in the foot, I'm. But then she says, I'm not sure. So she's weakening herself by saying that she doesn't know what she's talking about. And then she says, how I really, when she says really there, she's, it's a kind of a sort of, uh, that's taken away from what I'm about to say, but she still hasn't said anything. Really feel about this, but. And the words that would come after the but are the words she meant to say. This solution. When she does that, she could have started the sentence by saying, this solution. And then she could say, it sounds promising, or it will work or it can't work, or it worked last time. She has many choices of how to end the sentence. Once she's made the decision that a strong sentence begins with whatever you meant to talk about and not about yourself, with the I. So that's an example of a weak sentence starter that adds eight words or so to the sentence and says only one thing, don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. And so what you're proposing is for women to self-edit before they say what they want to say. They should think about how they're saying it so that they're using stronger language and actually cutting out some of the additional words that don't help to prove their point. Yes. Instead of plunging in with that 
let's see, I'm two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten words that don't say anything. Better to stop for a moment. People who look as if they're thinking for a second look very intelligent. People who plunge in to fill any empty space with words tend not to do so. So if you take a second and ask yourself a couple of questions, and the first and most important question is, what am I talking about here? You've heard that expression, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or she doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, what that, what that sentence really says is that this person thinks that he or she is supposed to talk about herself or himself, I. No, it's the question that we ask ourselves is, what do I want to talk about here? And in every case, I didn't mean to talk about myself. If I did, then of course it's okay to use an I statement. So the first question is, what, what is the subject of my sentence? What did I mean to talk about? We're talking about grammar here. And the second question to ask is, and what does that thing that I'm interested in talking about do mm. for a verb? And then to say that those are actually the first three questions. What am I not talking about? What am I talking about? Well, what is the subject of my sentence? And the third question is, what does it do? Prefer a verb. So once that sentence that we mentioned, talked about before says this solution, then we can say what the solution does. It sounds good. It doesn't sound good. It looks promising. It works before. We have lots of interesting things to say about this particular subject, the solution to a problem. Hmm. I wonder about that, taking a minute to think about your answer or idea before saying it out loud. Because I think a lot of people are afraid of silence in a meeting or in a conversation. It can feel like a break in the momentum or makes people nervous. Do you notice that at all? Or do you think people really are just kind of waiting and watching the person as they think and building, I don't know, intrigue by, by having that moment of silence? In general, one of the most difficult speaking skills to learn, whether you're on the phone, whether you're meeting with somebody face-to-face, or whether you're speaking to an audience, and I know your audience is particularly interested in speaking to audiences, is the use of the difficulty is learning the use of silence. Silence draws our attention. We're just filling, especially filling with empty words, tends to take away people's attention. They tend to lose interest in what you're saying. Mm. So part of what you have to master as you master powerful language is when and how long and how often to use silence as a way of emphasizing or to give yourself a couple of seconds to think about what exactly you want to say rather than blurting something out about yourself. Great point. What are some instances when women tend to use weak language? I'm sorry to tell you that since my first woman's book was published around 22 or 23 years ago, it was called a woman's it was called a woman's guide to the language of success. Um, all women 
tend to, most women tend to use weak language in almost every situation. They don't have to be nervous. They use it at meetings. They use it when you're supposed to lead. They use it when being interviewed. Uh, so is it, there isn't any one, and they use it as parents, by the way. Many of your listeners are probably parents, and some of them may be teachers. How often does a parent say, I want you to, to a child, or to a worker, or to a person who reports? Well, for most people, if you want me to do something, that's a good signal that I shouldn't do it. <laughs> how, how should you reframe that? Well, there's a lovely word in the English language, and it's, it's, it's a strong fist in a velvet glove, and it's only got a few letters, and it's very, very hard for people to learn. It's please. <laughs> please. Yeah, instead of saying, I want you to focus on this issue, or to a young person, I want you to pick up those toys. That immediately puts you in opposition to that little person or that adult person. And if you say please, and the person decides not to do it, you have a recourse. If you say, I want you to do it, and the person doesn't do it, you don't have much recourse. Hmm. Interesting. You can also choose a passive construction which is the most inefficient and worst way of communicating, but also gives you a recourse. Sometimes it works very well. Uh, for example, it worked very well in the White House for many years. The infamous, instead of saying, I made a mistake, the many, many presidents who used to say, mistakes were made. Mm. Besides using the word please, how do you recommend we start changing our language so it's stronger? Well, it's please is when we want to give an order to somebody, but we aren't always giving orders. So we to change our language to make it more powerful, it, it doesn't mean not being nice, by the way. We want everybody, especially women, to be what we call tough broads but very sweet and gentle, tough broads. People listen better if you have a gentle, kind voice. Uh, to be a tough broad, simply stop saying things and doing body language that takes away your credibility. So those weak I statements, I'm not sure so-and-so. I kind of relate to that. I feel that, that's a word we never want to use at work, at all, and not too often at home. I think the reason I came is because I think I have a problem with how many of your listeners say that all the time. Uh, just get rid of those things. And the simple way of, of strengthening your language is the one we already spoke about, and that's starting the sentence with its subject. That, that automatically makes the rest of your sentence powerful. Are there any reminders we could use that would help us to remember not to use the word I to start a sentence? Because that sounds like a really hard challenge <laughs> to try and well, remember. 
the avoidance of the I statement is a really easy idea. It is not rocket science. Everybody listening now understands the idea of why it's a bad idea to start every single sentence with an I. But you've been doing it for anywhere from 15 years to 20 years to 30 years to 70 years. And it's a habit and it has to be broken. And as soon as you, it takes a a little practice. And the best way to practice is with a group of colleagues or a group of friends or uh, even your own family where people can begin to break down the I statements and say what they were going to talk about again. That is the basis for all of what I call loving argument. Not saying things like, I know this and you're wrong. Because you is also not a helpful sentence starter. Sometimes it's okay. Um, We is a better substitute if you're leading a group. But it's mainly practice. Um, Executives work with it. Uh, The story that, that is in several of my books is a story of the executive, a young woman, who was, it was put in charge of a, a group that was having a great amount of difficulty uh, getting a task done on time. And the people would do nothing but complain about themselves and each other. I, I don't feel good. I feel this is wrong. I'm so upset that it's not working out. And the, this young leader set a simple rule, and that is, this is not about you, and it's not about me. Let's talk only about the subject. And a light went on, and everybody stopped talking about how bad they felt, and they started talking about the project and the deadlines that they had to work on, and they were able to work successfully and solve the problem. So group working in a group, agreeing to the basic rule of the road, the basic rule of arguing, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about whatever it is we disagree about. Then we can disagree lovingly. Hmm. I love it. Can you share a couple techniques to help us change the way we speak so we can speak with more power? Yes. Uh, One of them was thought of actually by a young client uh, on a three-way phone conversation. There was a a person in Washington, D.C., I happened to be in the part of the conversation in Rochester, New York. And the third was a a very able young woman in the PR business. And the person in Washington said, where are you? And the young woman said, Atlanta? Well, if you don't even know where you are for sure, who is going to listen to you? And so she resolved that this was a real issue once she heard herself. And she got only one other friend who did the same thing. And if you're under 30 now listening to this program, you know that you probably end sentences with questions and statements with question marks. And she and the friend just listened to each other. And every time one of them ended a sentence as if it was a question, They would just give each other a little poke, and they laughed, and they stopped within a week or so. So helping 
working with a partner or within a group is a very effective way of monitoring each other. It's fun. And it's, it's funny when you hear yourself doing the same thing that you shouldn't be doing over and over again. Yeah. There are a couple of women in my speaking club who are trying to avoid using the word um. And every time they use it, they notice it when they're giving a speech and they go, oh, darn, I didn't mean to say that. And even though it's distracting to the audience, since we're practicing speaking, it's not a big deal. But it's good to know that they're at least noticing it happening. And I like that. The, the poking as another yes. strategy. Yes. <laughs> and you mentioned another excellent technique, and that's the technique. And today, it, it, when, when we started doing this many years ago, before most of you were born, um, it was a complicated thing to have a transcript made of a person's talk, a, a minute or two or three or five-minute talk. But today it's very easy to do it because everybody can record on, on his or her own phone. By recording yourself and listening carefully and either having a transcript made if you have a business of some kind or making your own transcript, I think your computer can even make a transcript for you. Uh, you can then listen to yourself and you'll pick up the ums and the I statements and the very, very sad sort ofs and kind ofs that we hear constantly today, especially from young people. If you hear those fillers that don't say anything and you are conscious of them, you will teach yourself not to do them anymore. Do you see mistakes people make when it comes to weak language and speeches? Yes. <laughs> Uh, and they, I, I don't even like to call them mistakes because they aren't exactly mistakes like saying one plus one is three. They're not those kinds of mistakes, but they're mistakes that give a very heavy signal. Wait a minute. Do not listen to what I have to say now. And um, one of them is, I have notes on this and I need glasses to read it. Ah, the first mistake you're giving a speech is apology. I'm so sorry. This will take too long. I'm sorry I didn't have enough time to prepare. These are all real. I've heard them said at meetings with intelligent, educated speakers. Um, I'm sorry. This will be very long and boring. <laughs> God. So, <laughs> It, whatever you do, unless I'm trying to think of when it would be appropriate to begin a speech that starts with an apology. I'm sorry. Even if you're giving a eulogy at a funeral, you don't start by saying, I'm sorry, Billy died. <laughs> so the first is not to apologize. Um, the second one is to indicate that uh, you are not only not sorry, but how terrific you are. And so brag about yourself. It's a great way to get nobody to listen to you. So how many talks? I'm, I'm an expert on the biophysics of the airplane, and I've been working on it for the past 15 years, and I've come up with a solution and by the time you come up to the solution, 
nobody wants to know what you had to say. Hmm. So apologizing, bragging, um, and the third one, which probably is unexpected, is talking about yourself. There are some speakers are actually invited to talk about themselves. And even those speakers don't talk, they talk about their work most of the time. They don't really talk about themselves. So those are three of the big mistakes that people make uh, when they, it comes to public speaking, apologizing, bragging, and talking too much about yourself. And the other one is blaming yourself. That's similar to apologizing. Um, I don't have enough time to tell you all this information. Uh, that is kind of, that is a very big mistake. And if you make a big mistake when you start your speech, the chances are that you will have lost people by the time you get to the content of the speech. Hmm. When do you think it's appropriate to tell a story about yourself? Exactly, exactly, yes, when, what you just said. If you're telling a story, if you have little vignettes, because storytelling is an important part of speaking, if you have a little story about yourself that doesn't make you look bad unless you're in a powerful position, uh, if a little vignette in which, which is either about you or something that you observed where you could tell us a little bit about the environment that was going on, then it's okay to tell a story about yourself, but only if the story directly relates to what you're trying to say, not just a story about yourself or even about your kids. So nobody wants to hear stories about your kids except maybe the children's grandmothers or the children themselves. But if something happened with one of your kids, that illustrates an important point that you want to make, very often it'll be a funny story, then it's a very good idea to tell a story about your own family or yourself. So it isn't that you never, ever tell anything about yourself. It's that you only do it when it supports whatever point you're trying to make. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something when we talked last week that I hadn't heard before. You said, never tell your audience, I'm so excited. Can you talk oh, more yeah. about that? <laughs> oh, that, that, is, that is a killer. <laughs> and I think about the times when you say it. I mean, you bring a speaker in from a very far distant city. You, you have prepared for this speaker to come for six months. And the audience is standing in front of you, and you, the person who is introducing the speaker. See, when you introduce a speaker, you're part of the show. And to say, I'm so excited, or we're so excited, what does that say about you? It says nothing about the speaker. What does it say about you? Are you a bunch of babies? Mm. Why not say something wonderful about the speaker or say something wonderful about the audience? By the way, there's a, there's a very funny it's a joke line, an old joke from the theater. And it's an old joke where the guy is saying, and in this case, it's a guy because men are guilty of talking too much about themselves, even more than women. 
and they they say, well, we've talked about me long enough. Now let's talk about you. What do you think of me? <laughs> what? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so uh, but the, I'm so excited. I mean, the absolute last thing that brought that speaker to this audience is to make you personally excited. Hmm. What about saying it's an honor to be here or thank you for having me? Is that well, a good now, replacement? Now you're the speaker. Now you're the speaker. That's a little bit different. But as a speaker, you're certainly not going to say, I'm so excited to be here. But what would it say? It is a privilege to stand before a group of people who devote their lives to healing. Hmm. That's the difference? Yep. It's about them. All right. Yeah. Now, and that's right. Besides, it's about them, but it's something nice about them. Yeah. But it, it says, what is it? The speaker who gets up and says that, what is it saying about the speaker? It is saying that, in, but in much smarter words, I am so glad to be here. You see, it's saying I'm excited to be here, but it's saying it in a, in a very lovely, powerful way. It is a privilege but it's in the same way, it's a privilege because you are my audience, not I'm so excited. And that's the secret of all good communications. It's, and it, it's body language. It's the opening of the body instead of the closing of the body. The opening of the body is a way of getting rid of a physical I statement that especially women tend to make. So it's, it's, it's the welcoming. Uh, it's the opening. It's the, there's, there's the book that says lean in and probably the, the author knew what she was talking about. But the truth is that welcome, the body languages of welcome, the smile, the open arms, the powerful stance, the powerful walk, up to the podium are the, are the ways of welcoming people with your body and not only with your words. Hmm. So what we're getting at here today is avoiding these I statements that make you look weak and also take up more time without getting to the point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, right. and we're also talking about making the conversation about the other person when you need something from them, when you're trying to inspire them or give them information, make it about what they need, not what you need. Yes. And then also there is, we mentioned the language of loving argument, um, which there's a piece on, on the website that's not quite ready of word, the word grandma in January, but there's a piece being posted on loving arguments, and you've just heard all of the elements of loving argument, the kind of argument where we can disagree with one another and love each other when we walk away, that we don't have to hate each other and be angry at each other just because we disagree about some point. Mm -hmm. What a useful um, skill. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's the model of Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia at the Supreme Court. They stood at the farthest ends of thinking about Constitution and law. 
but they were very, very, first of all, they were always cordial to one another, loving argument, but they also were very close friends. And they're, they're the model that we should seek to follow whenever we need to argue about people. We need to argue with people. We need argument. We need disagreement. Otherwise, or we are as yes men, we're obeyers of orders. But we must be able to do it lovingly. In the same way, you've just learned the basis of the language of critique. Uh, in many years of, of work, uh, we work with people from very, very different backgrounds. Sometimes people who were hired uh, because of their background rather than because of their skills or people who lacked skills. And we worked with people in, in writing and in speaking. And it's very difficult to receive critique on your writing or your speaking. And it, was, it became clear that if as a critic, and this is, this is something that happened to me, if as a critic, I would say, oh, I like the way you, or you're not a good speaker, that's a very good way of making the person have no interest in whatever you have to say about them. But we learned that we could say all kinds of things about how you play with your hair or how you jingle the coins in your pocket, and they will be grateful and will listen. Uh, many a senior executive heard the comment, that sentence is not correct English. And they listened, and they realized that they were receiving loving critique, and they were very happy to change their sentences. So it isn't you who don't understand English. It isn't you or me, so it's not important whether I like your sentence or not, and it's not important about you, but it's important to get that sentence right. And once we discuss sentences or body language or the use of the word um, so rather than saying, oh, I hated the way you kept saying um in the middle of your sentence, what good does that do? Well, rather than saying you kept saying um in the middle of your sentences. Why not say 12 ums in a 15-word speech make, take away from the interest of the topic? Hmm. So you're turning it more into a fact than a feeling. It's a statement of fact, but it's a statement of fact about something. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about using um too much, constantly saying sh sort of. What does it do? Constantly saying sort of in the middle of your sentence takes away from the speaker's credibility. That's loving art. That's loving critique. Hmm. Now I'm really self-conscious. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Somebody once at, at one of our programs said, why are you making us self-conscious? Because the, the contrast to self-conscious is unconscious. We unconsciously say, well, I sort of thought that was a good thing. That's unconscious. <laughs> so self-conscious is very important to have. 
Otherwise, you're unconscious, and only your audience is conscious of what you're doing wrong or weakly. That's a good point. Okay, I like that. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Mindell, thanks so much for all of this information. Before we finish this conversation, I'd love to know what it means to you to claim the stage. Well, claiming the stage is a combination of a number of elements, and they, they have visual because people see you first. They have the decisions you make about style. What are you going to wear? They matter a great deal because that's the first thing people see. Uh, so they're visual and then they're nonverbal because people see you while you're waiting your turn. People see you how you get up from your chair. People see you walking or slouching, or looking as if you're about to be hung as you walk up to the podium. <laughs> so they look at you before you say a single word. So claiming the stage starts at home. And I, I will give you one, one funny vignette about claiming the stage. And, and I was giving a speech. This is a personal story for it was an audience of about 3,000 heads of medical schools at a major medical conference down in New Orleans. And I stood before, the, I always bring two outfits to wear because sometimes things get wrinkled or spilled upon or dirty. And on the first outfit, I tried my gestures in front of a full-length mirror and realized that every time I opened my arms because you have to make very big gestures when you're speaking 3,000 people. Mm -hmm. uh, the, t the top of my two-piece outfit would, would fly up with me and, and then fall down again when I dropped my arms. I didn't wear it. It looked funny. Yeah. So a little practice goes a long way. Good idea. And you have a website launching on your 80th birthday, January 29th, yes. 2017. Yes. What a great birthday present. That's the wordgrandma.com. Can you tell us more about it? Yes. The word grandma at this stage of my life, uh, which has been a very interesting life, but I particularly asked Angela that we not talk about my life because people want to hear what they need to hear uh, rather than talk about my life. But I, I, do a little bit of public speaking and a little bit of consulting and a great deal of writing now, but my ideas have helped thousands of people all over the world. My books have been translated into many languages, and I don't care about the business end anymore. I want to give my ideas to the young people of the world who need to learn better ways of finding their way in the world and finding their own singular, powerful, good voices. And so the word grandma is takes the ideas, puts them in simple, simple ways to read. They're never simple. They don't require stupidity to learn, but they're not rocket science. So there's one little feature on what word never to start a sentence with. By now you know the answer to that. Uh, on on how to get smart fast by reading powerfully. So power reading 
reading is the source of most of the things that we need to learn about in the world. It's much more efficient and it's much faster than getting the information any other way. So the purpose of the word grandma is to reach young people, young enough to be my grandchildren. And when you reach 80, you know, people 60 could be could be your grandchildren. <laughs> and this is meant to give these ideas away. Um, it helps if you have a copy of one of my books, but the word grandma will not be selling anything to anybody. Go to your local bookstore if you want, want to buy a book. They need your support more than I do. And we will be offering services, all kinds of consulting services at no charge to people who are interested and willing to be a, do a little bit of work on their own. People who couldn't otherwise afford the kinds of services uh, that I and my colleagues give. That is so generous. Thank you for continuing to do this type of work. It's, it's so important. And I had the honor of reading How to Say It for Women. Was that your second book or your third book? Third. Your third book over the last several months. And it, it really opened my eyes to all the mistakes I've been making and, and I'm trying to work on now. And it's it's so comprehensive and it gives so many great examples on the weak sentences versus strong and powerful sentences, how to give better feedback, you know, how to present yourself in a way that that shows your power. And I just so appreciate it. And I really appreciate having you on the podcast today. And I want to say thank you so much for all your work and for the time and for the impact you've made on women and, you know, people who could improve their communication skills. Thank you. And we'll end with the words of the, the wonderful poet, John Ciardi, who always ended his little radio programs many years ago with good words to you. Thank you. All right, there you have it. My interview with Dr. Phyllis Mendel. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please consider rating it and leaving a review if you are listening on iTunes. It's simple and it only takes a minute and your review will help more people to find the show. I want to mention that this is our last show of 2016. I'm going to be on vacation for a couple of weeks. I'm going cross-country skiing in Maine. It'll probably be a similar experience to my hiking experience experience back in August. So I may have to do another episode that tells you about all the things I learned this time in the snow instead of the sweltering heat. <laughs> and I've only been on cross country skis once when I was 11 years old and it was for about 20 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> this will be a much different experience and I'm sure I'll be sore and having all kinds of stories to share with you. So I look forward to talking with you all again in 2017. And if you're not already on my mailing list, make sure you jump on there before the new year starts because I'll have lots of new public speaking tips coming out, updates, events, stories. You know how I roll. You can go over to AngelaLucere.us to sign up. And once again, I want to thank my sponsors, McNally Communications over at McNallyCommunications.com and Name Networth, the networking consulting company that helps people improve their networking skills at NameNetworth.com. All right, guys, that's it for me for 2016. Thanks so much for being part of this podcast experiment. This is awesome. As always, Stop waiting, start creating. See you next time.